adventure that all started over tamales. I was in my favorite Guatemalan taqueria, just this cozy hole in the wall on the edge of our town's Latino enclave. The smell of fresh tamales and the sound of Spanish chatter is wafting from the kitchen. And this place is run by this cool family. They had a small bodega next to it selling imported products from Central America, household items, candies, party decorations. It was for the local Latino population that they served. And they made the best tamales. But the thing about them is you never know when they would make them. So on any given day, you could go there for lunch, look on the menu board and order the tamales. But they'd look at you with this kind of sweet but sad smile, shake their head and say, oh, sorry, no tamales today. And, you know, in my Minnesota polite way, I'd reply, oh, sorry, as though like somehow I should have known this. And which is kind of this bizarre Midwestern way we have of apologizing for nothing, but um, as though like it's my stupidity for not knowing that there would not be what is advertised. And, uh, and I would think like, there's this part of me that's like, hey, this is America. Don't you know that you're supposed to have whatever it is that you advertise? And, but then at the same time, I'm also thinking deep down, like, you know, there's something inherently cool about the situation. Like these tamales are so sacred that when I do get them, which eventually I do because they're the only ones in town who make them and eventually they do make them, that these tamales are so special. Like they're the best in the world and I'm so happy because I have them. And it kind of got me thinking about this, you know, America's Amazon Prime generation, this convenient society where not only the customer should always get what it wants, but it should get it like within a couple of hours on your doorstep, no matter what. And as as seemingly cool as that is, it it's also taking the specialness out of things. It's not like tamale day. But anyway, today, on this particular day, it was tamale day. So I kind of had this feeling like, yeah, anything's possible. And as I'm savoring my tamales, in the back of my mind, I'm, uh, I'm this word is popping into my mind. It's duality. And... It's a strange word just to be popping into my consciousness, but it's just this notion of having two sides. You know, there's two sides of everything there at all times, but how we look at it determines its effect on us. Anyway, so this little internal tamale debate in my mind is kind of spurring this growing curiosity about life south of the U.S. border. You know, and I'm starting to think about, like, who are these neighbors of mine? And this whole topic of immigration that seems to be on everybody's mind in news feeds and from migrant caravans and gang members and on and on. It seems like Central America is kind of constantly in the news. For decades, though, Central Americans have come to our small Midwestern town and others like ours as seasonal migrants or helping with farm work that fewer and fewer Americans have time or desire to do. Um, they take jobs in restaurants and construction and more and bringing in small businesses. And interestingly, throughout history of the U.S. and, of course, probably the world for that matter, immigrants are kind of often seen with this duality from these two different lenses, this good and the bad. It's, it's regardless of illegal or legal. Some just see this shift in local culture as a threat to the status quo. Hearing the sound of Spanish being spoken and deep down they're thinking like, oh, there goes the neighborhood. But then others, you know, others see the rise of taco trucks and they're like, yeah, some fear unknown and the change that it will bring about and how it might affect their identity. But then others embrace newness and they kind of are happy to like meld this new culture into the mainstream. And if you think about it, like there was a time that Italians were were not all that welcome. But, you know, 100 years later, we cannot imagine life without the Olive Garden. So, you know, eventually it all kind of works out. But 
I also contemplated another interesting irony, though. The Spanish conquistadors, which came to Central America in the 1500s, when the native Guatemalans or the Mayans who spoke Cachiquel, that was their language, when they heard Spanish for the first time, I wonder if they're thinking, there goes the neighborhood, or did they want to yell, hey, this is Guatemala, speak Cachiquel. And, uh, but nevertheless, they're speaking Spanish. Either way, the real headline grabbers are these immigrants who commit crimes and they're in gangs and the stats of illegals and it scares everybody. But also, you know, there's these stories of people traveling in caravans trying to reach the U.S. and we see pictures of, you know, children and exhausted mothers or unaccompanied minors. And, you know, beyond the debates over government detention policies, like I'm wondering, like, who are these people? What is going on down there? Why are they risking their, their lives to come here? Like, what is going on on the other end? Anyway, at the time, you know, the next thing I found myself is Googling Guatemala and scrolling across, you know, whatever I could pick up, find a few geography lessons, maps, tourism advertisements, soccer stats. But I stumbled across this blog by a guy named Joe Wallenchuk. And Joe, turns out he's this American professor who spearheaded a grassroots children's charity called Life of Hope Ministries. And he was involved in some really hefty undertakings on behalf of Guatemalan children, from overflowing orphanages to solvent-sniffing street kids and uh, slum schools in gang-infested neighborhoods. This Life of Hope organizations on the front lines of child welfare, like wherever the needs existed in Guatemala. And he'd written this post. It was called, Somebody Should Do Something, and which kind of made me laugh a little bit. It's this standard cry that's kind of uttered about any abominable situation that we feel overwhelmed by, where we kind of stand there with our hands in the air, kind of paralyzed and assuming there's always going to be this expert who can solve the problem, whether it's doctors or politicians, aid workers, teachers. It's sort of an, a, a statement from the developed world that there's always going to be an expert around. But, you know, if you travel enough in the developing world, you begin to realize that these experts can be few and far between. And if anything's going to be done, it has to be done by ordinary human beings. And Joe's blog, he kind of talked about how even the smallest actions of one regular person, you know, can make a huge difference and people can do more than they think. Everybody is somebody is the point. So I'm thinking this guy is seriously cool and I'm compelled to learn more. So I reached out to Joe to get more of his story. And a few emails and phone calls later, I'm getting up to speed pretty quickly. And the next thing I know, you know, Joe invites me to go join him on an upcoming field mission in Guatemala City while he visited some of their project sites. And uh, of course, as much as I want to visit Guatemala, and this is a professional trip, but I'm still not stupid. And conventional wisdom tells me that heading off to a foreign country with some guy that I just met online is absurd and ridiculous and dangerous. And for all I know, Joe could be some creepy psycho who just happens to write well. And uh, anyway, it's a total no-brainer. I have to be sensible. So I talked my friend Connie into going with me because Connie is not only a seasoned world traveler, author, and photographer, she has the most amazing karma in the world. Wherever Connie is, the sun comes out and the birds chirp and life is just great and all these fun things happen. So I convinced myself that going to Guatemala to meet a complete stranger would be much more sensible if Connie came along. So we book our flights and off we fly to Guatemala City to meet the mysterious Joe the airport, though, we're greeted by this middle-aged, mild-mannered, he's bachelor, easy sense of humor, perfect Spanish, and so far does not seem like a creepy psycho. He really seemed kind of more like a, a family member that I just hadn't met yet. 
And uh, for the next five days, we had this amazing personal tour of the vibrant yet intense duality of Guatemalan life. And that word just kind of kept popping back into my head again and again. And again, I'm kind of going back to the there goes the neighborhood <laughs> concept since the arrival of the Spanish in the 1500s, where you know much of Central and South America, I don't know, everything from language to religion to social hierarchy was just upended. And, and there is a difference between immigration and domination and, uh, and occupation. Um, but anyway, centuries of this foreign domination, it, it kind of forcefully influenced the local culture, but there's still always this determination among the indigenous people to hold on to their own cultural traditions, even if just in bits and pieces. And what it leads to is this new cultural amalgamation of Euro-Mayan influences here. And like in these small towns, you can see women still dressed in these indigenous huipils and elaborately woven clothing that they, it takes them three months to create on a backstrap loom. But they're going into Spanish cathedrals to worship and, uh, and just there's these colorful buses and horse-drawn wagons and cobblestone streets and, and uh, ancient thousand-year-old ruins in the jungles and modern high-rises in the cities. But possibly the greatest example and most hilarious example of this cultural duality in Guatemala is this deity called Mashimon. And according to folk legend, Mashimon was this philandering, chain-smoking alcoholic guy who was hired by traveling fishermen to protect the virtue of their wives while they went off to work. And really, to nobody's surprise, as soon as the men left the village, Mashimon seduced and slept with their wives. And when the men came home to discover what he'd done, they cut his arms and legs off in revenge, leaving him this emasculated stump. And uh, so, But somehow, for hundreds of years, Mashimon turned into a saint, and now he's also San Simon. And he's beloved by the Guatemalans as part Mayan deity, part Catholic saint, and uh, the, he'll grant anything your heart desires in exchange for money, cigarettes, and booze. It's a kind of a blurry line between belief and bribery, and some consider his worship a way for oppressed indigenous people to preserve their heritage, not to mention... They call it a creative way to give the Mayan middle finger to invaders and cultural disruptors. It, it also turns this unapologetic sinner into a saint in uh, another form of duality. And Guatemalans come from all over to honor him with cigs and alcohol in exchange for having their wishes granted. Although, of course, the Catholic Church is not exactly amused. But um, anyway, against Guatemala is like, you know, their travel paradise. There is this darker side that's constantly looming of its legacy. And I, being there, I began to get a greater understanding of why so many Guatemalans are so desperately looking for a life of hope. Uh, little history lesson in the late 1800s, the combination of a corrupt Guatemalan government and a very opportunistic American corporation known as United Fruit Company took control of vast amounts of farmland in Guatemala, primarily bananas, to capitalize on fruit sales across the U.S. and Europe. And by the 20th century, its American business was booming, but profits came on the backs of impoverished Guatemalan farmers and citizens. Uh, and which actually created the term Banana Republic before it was a trendy upscale clothing line. And by 1954, a democratically elected Guatemalan government was determined to undo this foreign control and give the land back to the locals. But not completely surprisingly, the new government was toppled by U.S.-backed forces that armed a military opposition and ended up thrusting Guatemala into this longest civil war in Latin American history. 
For 36 years, dictators and military leaders committed acts of terror and violence to suppress this guerrilla movement. But by 1996, when it ended, over 200,000 civilians had been massacred. I never could have imagined the universal full-scale human costs of having bananas on my breakfast cereal growing up, but that is what was going on. And in all war, the most catastrophic vestiges are always the broken families that leave children in the fallout. And without intact families, the children turn to whatever substitutes they can find. And one of the common ways that they find it, a family, is in gangs that offer protection at the cost of exploitation. So, you know, I just am, like, so curious more about these gangs, this word so imprinted in our American subconscious that it's, it's slowly becoming synonymous with immigrants and, and so much fear. And so I asked Joe, I'm like, I want to I wanna know more about this. And, then, of course, the next thing I know, he takes us to meet his friend Tita, Tita Everest. Uh, Joe knows everybody. And uh, she built this small school in an area of Guatemala City called La Limonada. And while the name La Limonada, it means the lemonade in Spanish, holds this very charming innocence, but it's actually the most notorious urban slum in all of Central America. And it's a designated red zone, uh, racked by poverty, drug abuse, gang violence, and off limits to most Guatemalans. But somehow we're here, and we're going to meet Tita. And, uh, and it was really amazing getting to know her. As a former drug addict herself, Tita longed to help the children of Lali Minata. She understood this need for family, and but she was warned against getting involved. But you know, but a woman after my own heart, Tita doesn't listen to conventional wisdom all the time either. So in 1994, she began her outreach by pushing her children in a stroller through the slums' narrow alleyways while carrying a pot of rice and beans to share with people in the community and just little by little, creating this, this sense of family and co- community together. And by 2001, she'd amassed enough trust, street cred, and cash to build a little school. She called it Vidas Plenas. It means full lives. I call it a spiritual oasis of primary colors and crayons, and it provided this supplementary education. It was more than a school, though. It gave daily meals and trainings in nutrition and health and hygiene, for a few dozen of the area kids. It was just a second family, what they needed, because most of their parents are, you know, suffering from the fallout of drug abuse and gang violence. Anyway, so here we are, Joe and Connie and I, we're in this barrio amidst a sea of cinder block and crumbling plaster and dirt and garbage and corrugated tin-sided shacks. Vitas Plenas was this coral pink beacon of hope, I call it. It was like a flower that sprouted impossibly through a cement crack, rising a few stories high up in this ghetto. And its juxtaposition in the community was dicey, to say the least. Right next door was the hangout of one of La Limonada's most notorious gangs. And so, you know, you're thinking, like, how long can a pink elementary school thrive in this community before it's going to end up the gang's next recruiting center? I mean, that just seems like a no-brainer. But instead of trying to camouflage into the community, Tita just decided she's going to face these gang members head on. And she is going to embrace them like family members as well. And in her own words, instead of social monsters, she was going to treat them as human beings. And what ended up happening is her compassion ended up earning their trust. And in return, instead of preying upon the students, the gangs ended up protecting them like little brothers and sisters. 
And uh, she shared this story with us about how one evening after she left the school and the sun had set, she had already walked through the vast honeycomb maze of dark alleyways to the city streets beyond. She realizes she forgot to lock the doors. And she's got to get back to lock the school up. But walking back alone, even if she's Tita, it's going to be extremely dangerous. But suddenly she's approached by one of the gang members who escorts her back to the school to make sure she safely locks up and gets back out to the streets to get home safely. And the story is just, again, this duality in humans. Tita eventually ends up joining forces with this former gang member named Shorty who became a pastor, and he now ministers the young people growing up in the slum. And I'm sitting here just taking all this in at the end of my Tamale-inspired search for answers, sitting in this just gritty barrio, reflecting on a culture where sinners become saints and gang members turn into family members, and they're all kind of working to repair this broken society from the inside. And it got me contemplating the role of family in our need for wholeness as humans. The truth is that family is it's just so much more than DNA, and it's really even more than simply having people in the world who love us and, and take care of us. Being in a family is gives us a sense of belonging to something larger than ourselves, and it's like being part of a group where despite the drama and the chaos and the messiness of all of our relationships, which it always is full of, we somehow have each other's backs and we love each other when we don't even like each other. And our family members, you know, they they push our buttons. But when the going gets tough, they defend us fiercely, no matter how bad we may have screwed things up. And so I came to this conclusion that this concept of family is the ultimate duality. And I don't know if I ever would have fully noticed it if I hadn't gone to Guatemala. I think it's a universal concept, but sometimes you have to get out of your day-to-day status quo to be able to see these things. Um, And being recognized as part of a family or a tribe or a clan by the outside world, when the outside world recognizes that in any form, that's what helps a child's sense of identity really begin to take root. And when he has these opportunities to show others that he's part of this group that values him, even by simply having a parent show up at the school play or the soccer game or whatever, this is where the child's self-esteem continues to grow because the outside world is recognizing like you are part of this clan. And uh, anyway, after I returned home, uh, I got together with a photographer colleague and uh, we coordinated this cool project with Tita. On the outside, it just looked like a simple children's art exchange between the Lali Manata kids and an American elementary school. But in reality, it was this long distance family reunion, I call it. It was coloring and painting and photographing and singing and shout outs back and forth from the American branch of the tree to the Guatemalan branch of the tree. And it kind of gave these kids this opportunity for their cousins in other parts of the world to, to see one another and realize not just that they had similar hopes and dreams, but that their address did not determine their value. And together they kind of embraced this new awareness of one another and of themselves and representing their quote unquote family. And that there's this place in the world where they belonged, no matter how dysfunctional the families may seem. And anyway, it was just a small contribution to this larger fight, obviously, that Tita's waging to save Guatemala. But it was a way for all of us to just do something and to show Tita that she wasn't alone. Since that trip, Tita has forged ahead and she's established three more schools in the Lali Manata ghetto serves over 400 children a day, and now not only has really the support of this an international NGO, 
is helping fund, but with the gang members themselves who are helping construct the new buildings and sending their own children there too. And it's just an amazing concept of family. And uh, anyway, reflecting on this adventure, I am still reminded of the duality of life in all of its forms and that we just need to keep moving and questioning and seeing the world from as many angles as possible before we make up our minds. And to understand that the world is more complicated than simply good guys and bad guys, but rather it's like family. There's good guys within the bad guys and bad guys within the good guys. And the sinners can be saints. And, you know, from politics to people, every negative experience contains a chance for us to create something new that can bring ourselves and the world to a higher consciousness if we keep this open mind and willingness to explore. And it's a reminder that ordinary people and even imperfect people are somebody's. And Joe's right. Somebody should do something. But most of all, I'm reminded, savor the tamales when they're served, because when it's tamale day, you never know what adventures lie ahead.